Chiefs podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Nick D'Souza and Kevin Papetti. Welcome to the Everything Least Podcast. I am Kevin Papetti here with Nick D'Souza as always. Nick, how's it going with you? How are you enjoying All-Star Weekend? Well, I didn't watch even a second of All-Star Weekend, but luckily Twitter had my back there. That Zegras goal was amazing. So if that was the, the highlight, at least of the weekend, at least I didn't miss that. So, uh, But other than that, just been working. So I'm excited for today, though, because uh, we've got some big things planned. Yeah, we have a returning guest to the show. Uh, it is All-Star Weekend, so we are at the halfway point. So we figured this would be a great time to do some lease report cards. And who better to do report cards than... Ian Report Cards, a.k.a. Ian Graff, a.k.a. Ian Tulloch. Ian, how's it going? Uh, not too bad. Happy to do this. Been doing this for a few years now in terms of the report cards. Always like discussing Leaf stuff with you guys, so I'm looking forward to breaking some stuff down today. We're hoping you have some hot takes. We're hoping you're going to be giving Nick Ritchie an A or something like that to get some uh, some good debate here going. So let's... Austin Matthews, C minus. Let's start with Matthews. I want to hear your Matthews take. So we're, we'll we'll start with forwards. We'll get into D and goaltending after, uh, but let's just jump right into it. Um, maybe once we're done report cards, we can get into some some, some trade deadline material or, or your thoughts there. But let's start with just your grade for Austin Matthews. Okay, so he's on pace for sixty one goals as of right now, and if you look at his defensive impacts, he should be in Selkie consideration. I don't know how to process his season other than just saying that's never happened before. A player who's in both Rocket, Richard consideration and Selkie consideration. It's truly special what he's doing right now. This is the type of player I always thought he could become, which is why I've been so hard on him in years past for not showing that defensive side of the game. I wanted him to develop it, and he's finally developed it while maintaining that elite offensive ability. So I'm giving him an A-plus just because I don't know if there's another player in NHL history who's had a season like this. He might not even win the Hart Trophy because there are some other really good candidates. But for me, he's the best two-way player in the league right now, and I can't believe I'm saying that. I'm I'm just shocked at what he's accomplished this year. Nick, do you have an A-plus? I have an A-plus, too. I don't think you can go anything lower than an A-plus. I mean... He starts the season in the first month with around a 5% shooting percentage. And, you know, we start to a little bit of doubt, but I think everyone kind of expected him to, like, he's so good at scoring goals. I think we all expected him to bounce back up. And he's back up to a, just under a 14% at 5 on 5 anyways, like Ian said, on pace for 61 goals. I'm just waiting for him to, you know, if, if he has a season where he's, Kind of, he's been pretty consistent in terms of his shooting percentage throughout his whole career. It's usually around 15 or 13. Like, if he has a second half of the season where he's shooting 20%, which we sometimes see among really good players like Pasternak or Ovechkin or Stamkos, like this guy can get maybe even try and touch 65 goals. So that's what I'm hoping for. But I mean, A plus, he's been amazing. Yeah, I'll, I'll make it three A-pluses. Um, I feel like the grades might be a bit higher this year just because of the Leafs' record. Like, they're setting their franchise record for points percentage right now. Um, I think A-plus, uh, his point pace, if he played 82 games, is 107 right now. I know Ian said the goals per game rate, which is, you know, just absurd. And then you just look at the RAPM charts, like, he's come such a long way defensively. Not that he was ever, like, a 
Phil Kessel like defensively, but like since his rookie season, he just seems to get a little bit better defensively every year. He's now an elite offensive player, player both from a points perspective and a play driving perspective. And then you know the defensive impact now is is through the roof as well. So you know when they drafted him, I think this is really even better than we could have imagined. Uh, this is basically as good as it gets. He's a top three player in the league with McDavid and McKinnon, I would say. Um, and maybe Kale McCarr as well. So I, I think A-plus was kind of the, uh, the I think that was was a gimme. So we're starting a little bit easy here. Nick, let's, let's go to you here. You can start on the next one. I want to stay on the same line, and I want to start, let's stay positive. Let's go, I think both will be positive, but one's probably ahead of expectations uh, even more than we could imagine. That's Michael Bunting. What did you have Michael Bunting at? How many pluses are we allowed? I know we talked about this earlier, but... <laughs> You're allowed four pluses. Four okay, pluses. Okay, we're going four pluses here. So A plus, 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 plus for Michael Bunting. I, you know, even when we... Let's just put the, the contract aside. Obviously, the contract is absolutely amazing. His job this year was to try to replace what a very good player in Zach Hyman brought to that top line, brought to the top six. Um, I don't think Bunting's brought it in terms of, you know, penalty killing, but that's not what... He had to do at five on five. Bunting's been absolutely amazing this year. He has 26 points at five on five this year. That's t- tied for 20th in the league. And then when you take in consideration of the contract, only Jason Robertson, who earns, whose cap hit is under 1 million, is in that stratosphere in terms of 5v5 production this year. Um, and Jason Robertson's an ELC at the end of the day. So when you look at non ELC contracts, like Michael Bunting's just in a world of his own right now. I think it's one of the most valuable contracts in the whole NHL. He's been amazing. I mean, he just seems like he fits with Austin Matthews. He's so good at puck retrieving. And his finishing has just been amazing this year. So, I mean, he's been just such a... It's been such a special special season, sorry, for Michael Bunting. So, uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot of pluses. Ian, do you also have... Uh, are you breaking the A-plus barrier here? Yeah, I think I got to go with the four pluses. I know we're starting off here hot with an Austin Matthews A plus and a Bunting A plus. I promise we will be a bit tougher on some of these other guys, but <laughs> when you look at what Matthews and Bunting have done together this year at five on five, I want to say they're controlling 62% of the expected goals. And I know that that's mostly Matthews, but the whole point of a Michael Bunting is that he can play alongside a Matthews and not drag him down considerably. He can keep up with him. And I know the interesting thing about Bunting is that he shot at such an absurd percentage last year. A lot of the models had trouble evaluating him properly because they went, well, this guy's going to score a bunch of goals, but how much are you regressing that shooting percentage? Because it's going to have to come down to a certain extent. As of right now, he's shooting 13% at 5-on-5. I still think that's going to drop a little bit over the next year or so, but the bigger shock to me is what he's doing as a playmaker. I did not think he'd be able to complete passes off the rush, and if you look at some of the microstats or if you look at research that's been done by someone like Harmon Dial, the ability to complete a pass after gaining the zone is one of the best predictors we have for future offense. And Michael Bunting's ability to do that on a three-on-two or a three-on-three rush when he plays alongside Matthews, that's what's blown me away this year, and it shows in the numbers. His primary assist rate is right up there with Marner and Nylander for the top three in the Leafs. They're the only three guys who are above one primary assist per 60, and I'm not sure if he's going to sustain that, but the fact that he's even in that conversation and he's tied for first in the Leafs in points per 60, he leads the league, or at least he's tied for first in the league in penalties drawn with Connor McDavid. So it's nice to know that the best player in the league leads the league in penalties drawn, and Connor McDavid's doing all right too. So 
yeah, I'm a big Michael Bunting fan. He also is a, a, an annoying player to play against. Can't wait to see what he does in a playoff series, but I, I can't say enough positive things about this Scarborough man. He's uh, he's He's been everything and more than you expected him to be, and the fact that he's under contract for $950,000 next year, that's going to give the Leafs a lot of flexibility to play around with the lines, and I know it's so hard to find guys on cheap contracts who can provide value in the top six. He's one of them, so that's a big home run for Kyle Dubas in free agency. I did not think he'd be able to do this. Yeah, I'll make it three A-pluses as well. Um, I think Bunting, you know, you look at, the contract is what really stands out. I mean, getting him for two years at 900 k as a free agent, um, not that he was a restricted free agent for the Leafs, like just a pure free agent. Um, you know, when Zach Hyman left, there were definitely some big shoes to fill in terms of, you know, the, the, the Leafs' left side looked quite weak on paper to start the year, and Bunting was supposed to start the season on the fourth line. All of a sudden, I think it was Bakayev who got hurt. You know, Richie wasn't really playing up to expectations, and Bunting came in and has really hit the ground running. I mean, the, the points, he's on a 57-point pace over 82 games, and that's without being on the top power play unit. Um, and then, yeah, the, the drawn penalties, as Ian says, is just extra value. And it, it, it seems like every game he's drawing a penalty. That's how it feels. I don't know what the actual game stats is but it just feels like 24 7 this guy's giving the Leafs uh, a man advantage he's so. 26 he, right now and the Leafs have played about 39 games I want to say so almost he's played yeah he's played 42 so I mean that's pretty crazy uh, the fact that you're you're up there with McDavid so I mean we're starting off very easy here with these a pluses let's go I don't know if it's I, I think we'll still have a, a, a pretty good grade uh, but let's go Mitch Marner. Let's finish off this line. Ian, where did you have number 16? So can I cheat and can I divide it into two seasons for Marner? Can I say uh, before his quarantine and after his quarantine? Because What's, I want an overall, though. Like, I know A-plus after quarantine. Well, yeah, or, or I, an A or whatever you want to call it. Before, I was gonna, I was thinking C or C-minus. It just it was mm-hmm. a really rough start to the year. So I guess overall, he averaged those out, and that's what, a B? B-minus? Yep. It's hard because the expectations are high for Marner, obviously because of the contract, but his last three seasons, he's averaged 95 points as a scorer. And I know that on podcasts like these, we try to look beneath the surface. We care more about just points. We look at 5v5 play driving. We look at your fit on the line. We look at your entries, your exits, your forechecking numbers, and we're trying to put everything together to assess player value. But at the end of the day, if you're producing at a 95-point rate, that's where most of your value is going to come from. And for Mitch Marner, he wasn't producing at that rate earlier. Now he's at 37 points in 33 games. So what's that if I extrapolate that? That's... 92 over 82. Okay, so almost there. He's almost back up to where you expect him. He's one of the least best penalty killers. The power play is where I'll say I'm impressed with his ability to move around. I know last year the least power play sucked, and that was a big part of the reason they went out in the first round. There were other reasons, but Mitch Marner... Not finding a spot on the power play that worked for him was a big part of the problem this year. He's moving around. He'll start on the right wall. He'll go down to the goal line. He'll come back up to the left wall. He'll go to the bumper, sometimes go net front. Sometimes he rolls up to the blue line and plays point. And I think it makes the Leafs a lot harder to defend because if you're a penalty killer, you don't know where Matthews is. You don't know where Marner is. You don't know where Nylander is. And I think the ability of Marner to do that and to be a bit more interchangeable in the roles in the power play, it's part of the reason the Leafs have such a successful power play this year. So I'll give him a B, B minus, because I have such high expectations for him, but he's on a heater right now, and I'm hoping he can keep it going the rest of the way. Nick, did you have him in the B range, or did you go higher? No, I went B minus as well. I think with Mitch, like like you said, Ian, 
the expectations are so high and he's had season after season of being a effective player on the penalty kill which i think he's been really good this year and at the end of the day you know he's a above 10 million dollar player so the expectations are high i'm so torn about marner because i obviously i can't ignore the beginning of the season i don't think he was good and after you know when we watch the games and like you said like we we look at things more than just points and I tend to watch the game and I see Marner get the puck sometimes and he slows the game down and he's turned the puck over a little bit too much for my liking. But then you look at the end of the game and he has three or four points on the night. So it's tough to just be upset with him. I think he's just that, that type of player sometimes, but I give him a B minus. I think there's more to him. You know, I think that he's still kind of getting his feet wet in terms of, you know, getting back into the play. Obviously the points are there, but I don't know. I, maybe I'm being a bit tough on him. Um, but I think come playoff time, I want to see him, you know, really stand out on this Leafs team and, and really kind of be one of the, the better players on this team, um, especially after the last playoff run. So um, I don't want them to, like, change up him and Austin Matthews. I mean, they're still above a 60% expected goals together, even this season. They're dominant together. Uh, I just have very high expectations for him. So I think a B-minus is fair. Bunting Matthews Marner is at 67% expected goals this year. It's ridiculous. Two thirds. So there's that. Kevin, I'm curious about your thoughts on Marner as a shooter. I know you're going to give your grade, but I know that's been a big part of the discourse right now in terms of, is he a shot threat? Can he actually shoot from distance and beat a goaltender and earn the defense's respect? After you give your grade, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I gave him, I'll give him a B to B plus. Let's go with B. Um, I, I think just the overall stat line, 37 points, 33 games at 92-point pace while being good defensively and a good penalty killer. Um, you know, to me, he's about meeting expectations, um, but that is very strong production. I mean, you expect that with what he's getting paid, but he is a very well-rounded player. He's, you know, not amazing by the play-driving metrics like RPM, but, but solid all around, like above average offensively, above average defensively. Uh, I do think that... You know, the, the defensive part is key. He can match up against top competition if you need him to. He can pretty much play in any role. Um, you know, as you as you alluded to, Ian, a lot of that was over the last five games. He had multi-point games in his, over his last four against maybe some easier opponents. But I just love the look at that Matthews-Bunting-Marner line. Uh, obviously, I think the, the success of Matthews and, and Bunting is, is probably driving that relative to their expectations. Bunting's obviously been... Kind of the biggest surprise, uh, but but Marner's been solid. I mean, he's a, he's just a, a well-rounded player. When he was missing there, I think people were really underestimating how big of a loss that was for the Leafs. And in terms of the shooter question, you know, I I, I think he's always going to be a playmaker first. And this is a guy who, I mean, he's played almost 400 NHL games and he's over a point per game in his career. I just think when people want him to shoot more, it's like that's not really his game. Like he's. You don't necessarily have to change him. I know the playoff success has been a bit iffy, but I, I still believe that you know, sometimes he makes his best plays when everyone's yelling shoot and he passes. Like giving Matthews a tap-in or giving Bunting a tap-in. He did an amazing play the other night to set up Bunting in front of the net. That I was thinking of that one where he dekes his way through the slot and everyone's thinking he's going to let it rip, and then there's the backdoor tap-in. And then like we've seen him with JVR, we've seen him with Tavares. Uh, those power forwards that can get to the net. He's a good transition player. 
So, you know, I don't know if we want him to shoot more. He doesn't have the hardest shot. I do think he's got an accurate shot. Uh, I do think that, you know, with the power play, you do have to get him in situations where he's closer to the net if you want him shooting more because uh, I think we can all agree him shooting near the blue line probably isn't the best strategy. Yeah, he needs um, to be between the dots and ideally closer to the net, like you said. Yeah, and, and I mean, the power play last year was a struggle. It wasn't all him. He was, Joe Thornton is out there with him. Um, but you look over his career, he's got great, you know, his, his points per minute on the power play is, is quite strong. So, you know, I, I think he's either, I think he's about met expectations. I think anywhere in the B range is fine. You could argue B plus, you could argue B minus, but I think we're all kind of in the same boat there. But Ian, what do you have to say about Marner's shooting? I think he can become a more powerful shooter. Like you said, I think the accuracy is there. I know Matthews has talked about this, about when he's skating downhill, I actually think he's a good shooter. I actually think off the rush, uh, if he's skating in between the dots and he lets one rip from the slot, he's beaten NHL goaltenders clean. Stationary, he's a terrible shooter. And I think that's the big thing on the power play. Where if you're trying to get him to stand in a spot where Ovechkin stands and let one rip off a one-timer... I don't think it has a prayer of going in, but I think if you get him moving and rotating and attacking downhill towards the net, I think he becomes a much more dangerous shooter and a much more dangerous passer because he has options. So I think if you can incorporate more of that movement into his game, which seems to be their plan, even at five on five, they have him roll up to the blue line a lot, which is where Nathan McKinnon loves to generate offense from. He starts high in the offensive zone in the middle of the blue line and then attacks downhill because there's lots of open space for him to attack the net. Marner's been doing a lot of that lately, mostly as a passer, but I think as a shooter, having more room for him to skate in is where he becomes a bit more dangerous. So, like you said, I don't think he's ever going to be a shot-first player. I don't think defenses are going to be terrified of his shot, but I think there's room for him to improve that area of his game. And if you improve your shot, that's only going to make you a better passer. So I think that's the biggest goal for Marner moving forward. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He just he's a little bit weak, so I don't know if he has the same power of like a Matthews, but he is on pace for 35 goals over 82 games right now. I don't think anyone's expecting that. He was on a crazy uh, a crazy goal-scoring vendor there. But I think we're all in kind of an agreement there in terms of in terms of the range. Let's yeah, fly through to the second line here. I'm going to gonna quickly... Yeah, yeah, I'm quickly going to say something about what Ian just said. And I don't think anyone really wants him to, to become a shot-first player. But I do want him to be a shot threat. And you like, even if you look at other sports, like you look at a guy like Ben Simmons, and you know, he only is able to get to the net... And if he became a better shooter, it would open up him being able to get to the net. And I think that's where Marner has that room to become a better shooter. And I do think the passing opens up. And Ian, I know you actually had Bruce Boudreau on your podcast once, and he talked about Nicholas Backstrom on the power play. And he said that his passing opened up once he became a better shooter. Um, And that really stuck with me, especially with Marner, because I do find that sometimes he is only looking to pass the puck. Um, I know there was an example at least two games ago where he had a two-on-one and his body language was that he was going to pass the puck. The defenseman there was blocking the pass. Marner made the pass and it got picked off. So I do think if he is a shot threat or shoots the puck a little bit more, then it could open up his passing too. So I think that was a great point, Ian. And I like your basketball comparison in that if you have a player who's an incredible passer, but not a shot threat at all from distance. It makes the de- it makes it so much easier to defend them because you can clog the passing lanes. I'm thinking of someone like Ricky Rubio, who was an otherworldly passer, magical hands, magical vision, but never developed the outside shot, so he was easier to defend. I know he still racked up assists, and I know when he was on the floor, I think he's probably better than a lot of people realize throughout his career at generating offense, but 
if you have that shot threat and the ability to make a pass, you become so much harder to defend. Yeah, I just think that's obvious. Like, I think obviously you'd want Marner to be a better shooter. I'd want Kerfer to be a better shooter. I want Riley to be a better defender. Um, but Marner's, like, he, last year he was close to a 30-goal pace. This year he's over 30-goal pace. The points, he's over point per game. I do. I just think that, you know, sometimes it gets a little bit too much attention that he's a good player. But, you know, if, if he becomes a shooter, he's one of the best players in hockey if he all of a sudden becomes a, a good goal scorer. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of obvious that if he could become a, a high-end shooter, he'd be, you know, probably in the A range or an A-plus range and exceeding expectations. But, you know, I think we're all, in terms of grade, somewhere in the B range, um, you know, with the contract and, and the high expectations because he's done this before. I don't know if he's having a better season than previous years, but I think we're all kind of in the, in the same ballpark in terms of grade. Let's go to the second line, Nick. We'll start with you. Uh, let's go with John Tavares up the middle. So he's got 40 points in 41 games. Uh, where did you have him? I have him at a B plus. I think that he's had. Uh, I don't really have like huge strong opinions about Tavares. I do think as a line, I want them to be a bit better, and I think I'll kind of touch upon that when we get to Kerfoot. But I think Tavares is having a pretty good season, especially at five on five. Like he's had so many great seasons throughout his career, and I think this season, in terms of just point rates and shot rates. Um, at five on five especially it's probably been in the top three or top four of his career so I think at this point you got to be happy about that I do think he's you know a lot a bit slower I would say than when he was in his prime and I think it's good to have Nylander who's a great puck transitioner and Alex Kerfoot next to him um, to get him into that offensive zone because once you get him into the offensive zone he's one of the better finishers in the league especially after around the net I just absolutely love the way that he can be in tight and his ability to lift the puck over the goalie and get it up in a hurry. Um, I think he's pretty, you know, it gets talked about a little bit, but I, I definitely think he's one of the better finishers around the net in the league. So, uh, yeah, I think a B-plus is okay. Um, Ian, do you have him around there or a little bit higher? Lower, honestly. I, I struggled with him because point production-wise and offensively, I think he's doing great this year. He's back to point per game. Tavares, if you look at chances from the slot, he's among the leaders in the league, and he converts on those opportunities, and that's a very valuable skill. In the playoffs, when defenses get tighter and the ability to generate offense off the cycle becomes more important, that's one of Tavares' biggest strengths is that he can deflect pucks from the middle of the slot there, similar to a Joe Pavelski get lots of rebounds for you. He's weirdly a power forward, even though you don't think of him that way, just because of his ability to really grind things up in the middle of the ice in that slot area. Uh, off of entries, he's making good plays, good passes, good decisions. But his 200-foot value is where I really struggle because for the longest time, this Kerfoot, Tavares, Nylander line was below 50% in shot share at 5-on-5, five five, which I just thought was absurd. You can't have that when you have Tavares and Nylander on the line. you got to be way above 50. They're at 50.6 right now. So I guess I can give them a bit of credit for climbing above 50, but that's like you said, that's not good enough. So I've got them at B- minus right now. I think Tavares carries a bigger shoulder of the blame for that line's lack of 5v5 play driving than we want to admit. I know that you and I, Nick, are going to blame Kerfoot for a lot of it because we're not a big fan of his ability to drive play at 5-on-5, five five. but I think uh, the sad realization here is that Tavares is on the wrong side of the age curve. His ability to impact the game 
especially defensively, I think has really fallen off. And I don't know if he was ever that great of a defensive player, but I think especially right now his ability to impact things is is waning. Nylander's the best player on that line right now. He's the one who's transitioning it the most. He's the one who's really impacting play the most. But uh, I think Tavares, in terms of his overall 200-foot ability, I gave Matthews an A-plus because of his ability to impact things in the full 200 feet of the rink. Uh, with Tavares, if I'm taking that entire 200 feet of the rink into account, it's nowhere near where I'd like it for a player of his caliber. So B minus, even though I love the offense. Yeah, I give him a B minus as well, actually. Uh, the point production's strong. The play driving's iffy. Um, you know, below average on defense. Only a, like slightly above average on offense in terms of RPM, uh, in terms of expected goals. I mean, coming off that injury, given his age, I think we're all pretty happy with you know, what he's provided so far in his contract. Um, this is year four, I believe. And, you know, so far he hasn't really fallen off a cliff or anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I think anywhere in the B range I'd be okay with. I give him the B minus, mainly because of the play driving. You know, in his first season, he was the one going up against top competition. Not that he was amazing at it, but uh, now it's it, it feels like it's either going to be Matthews or David Camp. Um, so I, I think they could use another play driver on that line. Uh, we'll get into Nylander and Kerfoot here in a second, but um, I do think that you want a little bit more from Tavares from a play driving perspective. He's not the best transition player. He's not the best defensive player given the lack of speed, but still a very valuable player. And I mean, a B minus given his contract is, is still an outstanding player. Um, I just do you remember when Claude Giroux moved over to the wing and put up 100 points when Sean Couturier centered that line? I'm wondering if with Tavares something similar might happen. If you get Couturier, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just trade for Sean Couturier, problem solved. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think maybe eventually we'll see Tavares on the wing. Um, for now, I'd keep him there. Um, I, I was just seeing his face-up percentage is nuts. Not that that's the most important thing about a center, but he's over 60%. Everyone on the Leafs. Everyone on the Leafs is yeah, killing their face-offs this year. Face-offs, Big yeah. uh, Manny Malhotra fan in terms of that regard. But, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, maybe he moves to the wing, but so far so good. B-minus is, is, you know, I'm pretty happy with that given, you know, that he's a few years into the contract. So let's let's go to Nylander here, maybe the, the bigger play driver on that line. Um, Nick, let's start with you again. Where did you have Bill Nye, the scoring guy? I have him as an A right now. Um, I mean, he's just been excellent. On, on many nights, he's you know probably the Leafs' best player on the ice. Um, I mean, there's just there's not really much more to say about him. I just love the way he's he's played this year. He's been that primary guy. I think in, in definitely in the neutral zone on his line, um, in the defensive zone, I think he's really improved. He once again is a takeaway star, which you know we're kind of just used to at this point. But even his takeaway rates are you know, at the same rate, if not higher than past years. His five-on-five production has been really good. In the offensive zone, I mean, obviously he's still been a star. He should have been an all-star this season. I think if, you know, guys like Nick Suzuki weren't making the team, I think Nylander, you know, should have gotten a bigger consideration. Um, you know, yeah, I think Nylander's just been good, so I'll give him an A. Okay, Ian? Uh, yeah, boring, giving him an A as well. I think this is his best season in his career. And shockingly, when you give a good player more minutes and he keeps scoring at a high rate, and it, it's good. I, I I never understood why he got 16 minutes a night. I know that you have frustrations with him on certain nights when it comes to effort or going hard into the corners defensively, but he's such a talented player that playing him closer to 20 minutes a night I think always made sense. When the least power play wasn't clicking and they couldn't figure out why, 
and William Nylander was sitting on the bench watching Joe Thornton in the slot of PP1. I just, I, I don't know how that was a thing, but now that you have William Nylander in, ma- in key situations, PP1, even when they tried splitting the talent, that was probably my favorite game I watched this year where they found a way to get Nylander 20 minutes in that game because out of TV timeouts, after an icing, they threw him out there with their best talent because they know that William Nylander is one of our best players. Got to get him on the ice more often. I know he's not one of their most important penalty killers, but the fact that they threw him out there on the penalty kill certain times after they iced the puck so that it was a neutral zone trap situation, William Nylander's really good in a neutral zone trap. And he can take away the puck, like you said, and get it going the other way for transition offense. I don't need to talk about his own entries or his own exits. I think everyone knows he's phenomenal at transporting the puck. Just a, a fun fact here. How many secondary assists do you think he has this year at 5-on-5? Five five? I, I know this is a zero. Right. Yeah. So wow. that's a that's a fluky stat. So if anything, his production is going to go up. So uh, I'm really impressed with what he's done this year. A could probably even justify a higher grade, but I want to see if those uh, those secondary assists come up and he climbs above a point per game pace. Because I'm just this is the talented player that we all saw over the last few years, and now he's finally getting the ice time and he's finally doing the 200 foot things we want to see to earn that ice time. So I love so, it. So this is where I get the benefit of going last. I was going to give him an A minus, but after hearing the secondary assist thing, I'm going to bump that up to an A. Um, he's been this has been his best season. He's he's right around the point per game mark. Uh, his worst games were like right at the end there against New Jersey and Detroit, where he went pointless. Um, and, and you know those weren't exactly incredibly important games. But you look early in the season, especially he was the least best player on so many of those early games. Uh, the transition skills there. He's playing with Tavares. Um, you know he's just so important for that line in terms of in terms of transition ability and, and you know setting them setting them up in the offensive zone. He's killed penalties at times this year. Um, you know, he's not the, maybe the best five on five player defensively, but still very good, uh, impacts in terms of RPM. So I think he's, he's a good player who slightly outperformed expectations. We'll give him the A, as Nick said, probably could have been an all-star, but I think this next one's going to be pretty interesting. And that's Alex Kerfoot. Um, the, you know, the points are there. I know the play driving's kind of iffy. Uh, I really have no idea what you guys are going to give Kerfoot. Let's start with Ian this time. Where did you have number 15? Okay, so you know how I said uh, in terms of points per 60, Bunting was tied for first? Yeah, Kerfoot <laughs> is the other guy who's tied for first in points per 60 at 5-on-5. Five five. So that's something that's really good, obviously. If you look at goal impact at 5-on-5, five five, he's first on the team, both in terms of a fancy stat like a, a goals for RAPM, or if you just look at basic plus-minus, he, he leaves, leaves, leaves in plus-minus. So I think this is why people are so high on him is because when he's on the ice, good things are happening. Goals are going in, and he's one of the three players picking up a point on those. Guess who leads the Leafs in secondary assists? Guess who leads the Leafs in on-ice shooting percentage? Uh, guess who leads the Leafs in the difference between his goal impact and his expected goal impact? It's Alex Kerfoot. So this is where I get into the the trouble of descriptively, he's been very good. Predictively, I don't think he's going to continue to be very good. And I I gave him a B minus. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I don't know how to do this one because I've never been a huge fan of Kerfoot's 5v5 play driving ability. And I continue to not be a fan of his 5v5 play driving ability. But the pucks are going in the net. So that's why people are a big fan of it. But this earlier this year, Matthew's shooting percentage was low and people were frustrated. But because of all the things he was doing at five on five that led to scoring chances, eventually regression kicked in and the production went up. I think the opposite thing is going to happen with Kerfoot here down the stretch. And 
I get that people are going to be happy with what he's doing right now. I just don't think it's real, and I don't think it's going to last. I'm curious what you think, Nick. It's so hard with Kerfoot because I don't want to knock a player that currently has 25 play, uh, 25 points at 5v5. And you look at the other two players that have 25 points at 5v5, it's Vlad Tarasenko and Philip Forsberg, So and then Alex Kerfoot. So like you said, though, the secondary assists are high. The, the on-ice shooting percentage is high. He's playing with two very good players. I gave him a B. I think Kerfoot... I, I really do value play without the puck. And I love what Kerfoot brings to that line in terms of away from the puck. He's always active. He's a good puck retriever. But when I look at that second line in general, Nylander's not going to move from that line. You want him to get that ice time. Tavares obviously isn't going to move from that line. So that leaves Kerfoot. And when you look at the wowies or the with and without use with Tavares and Nylander with Kerfoot versus not with Kerfoot, the line can do well without Kerfoot. And I think that Kerfoot can play on the third line. I think he can do good as a center on the fourth line with Spezza. So I'm giving him a B here, but I, I don't want to see him on this second line come playoff time. I think that's where at the trade deadline, the Leafs are going to want to improve. Um, and as a line, they're getting about 60% of offensive zone starts right now. They're not playing top competition in terms of the other team's top lines. They're playing second second uh, lines on the other team and the Leafs are most likely in the playoffs going to play Tampa Bay who their second line right now is Alex Kalorn, Steven Stamkos and Matthew Joseph or let's say they even play the Boston Bruins who currently have Pasternak on their second line so if the Nylander Tavares Kerfoot line is at about 50% expected goals against you know the 31 other teams or 30 other NHL teams I don't want to see them go up against the Stamkos or a Pasternak line in the playoffs for seven games. I think they really need to It'll be at like there. 40%, you know, 45%. It's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. So I think that's where they need to improve. Unfortunately, I'm not blaming Kerfoot really for, you know, that 50%, but that's where they need to improve that second line. So I still think Kerfoot's a good player, and I'd like to see him, you know, in that bottom six where he's been really effective. So, uh, Kevin, are you are you good cop or are you bad cop here? I gave him a B. I think he's met expectations. Um, you know, you look at the, the points, 61. He's on pace for 61 points over 82 games, uh, and that's without power play time, really. So, I mean, that stands out. As Ian said, you know, it's, it's not going to be sustainable. I don't think he's actually going to get to that pace because he's been incredibly lucky. Uh, but I think he's, he's about what we expected from him. He's like a iffy average play driver, you know, fairly good defensively, especially on the wing. Um, someone who's pretty versatile and can move to center when needed. Um, I won't get into, you know, where I want him in the playoff lineup yet. We'll get into that, you know, later when we talk about some targets at the deadline. But I think around expectations, about a B. Um, obviously, if, if you're going to, if a team was going to trade for him thinking he's a 2C or something, you know, maybe there's some value there. But, um, you know, I think he's about met expectations. I think, you know, the wow he did, I don't know if I, you know, bind up 100%. Uh, you know, just because it's maybe a bit of a small sample. But I will say that last year, Alex Galchenyuk did have a, a decent amount of su success with Tavares and Nylander. So um, it's worth keeping in mind that, you know, that is a bit of an easier role. If he, if he had these types of point totals when he was driving his own line, I think that would be, you know, maybe more in the eight range. So Can I push I think back we're all... on that real quick? Just because I'm like, Nick, I'm a nerd, and I've looked at these wowies a lot, and throughout Nylander's career, it's so hard to find someone who struggled with him at 5-on-5 five five in terms of being close to 50-ish 
because Nylander tends to lift guys above 55% in both shots and expected goals. Kerfoot's one of the few guys where it's close to 50-ish, and I don't like that. Yeah, I, I I don't know if I'm concerned with Kerfoot's ability to play with Nylander. Like, they had so, so, so much success last year. I know that was from more of a points perspective as well. Um, but Kerfoot's a player who really doesn't shoot. And I, I can see him maybe having higher, you know, on-ice shooting percentages a little bit, not to this degree. Um, but, I mean, I, I am kind of aligned with Nick in terms of potentially moving Kerfoot down um, if you do go out and get someone. But right now, as of this moment, like, I would have Kerfoot on that line. I, I, I wouldn't go to Engvall. I wouldn't go to Spezza or Kasha. I, I think they have the optimal lineup right now. Um, but I will say that, you know, Galchenyuk last year, I, I do think there's a lot of players you could go out and acquire, whether it's even like a Cali Yarnrock that could have success with Tavares and Nylander because they're good players. So that's worth keeping in mind. The, you know, the on-ice shooting percentage is worth keeping in mind. But I will say he he's probably about met expectations still, so that's why I gave him the B. What were you in? Were you in the B range? B minus. Yep. Yeah, I think that's about fair. Um, I, I I am curious to see what he could do in a third line, um, and I am curious to see what he could do at center because we haven't really seen it this year. Um, but we'll get it. I guess we'll get into that later on when when we kind of get some some thoughts on the deadline and what positions they should acquire. Um, let's quickly move on to the third line here. Uh, let's start with with the center, David Kampf, who's you know maybe not the, the highest guy in terms of points. He's on pace for twenty seven over eighty two, uh, but the defense the the defense has been legitimately pretty good. So, Ian, where'd you have him? Yeah, so he's a tough one because there's no offense whatsoever, but that's not why you have him as a player. You have him because you trust him in defensive situations. On the penalty kill, I've loved him not just because of the face off ability, but in zone, when the other team's set up in formation, historically we know that you're going to give up shot attempts, you're going to bleed scoring chances. He's one of the few players that I've watched over the last few years in a Leafs uniform where he pressures the players on the half wall, forces turnovers, and gets icings despite the fact that they're set up in formation. So when you put his penalty killing value into account, when you take his defensive ability at 5-on-5 five five and the zero offense, uh, I went A-. minus. Uh, may- maybe I'm harsher on him because I still think at some point there's there's a, a, a point where you can play a player with absolutely no offense too much. And I know in, in a tie game, I get concerned with how much camp is playing. But the second the Leafs get a lead, he becomes one of their more valuable players. But when you're chasing a game, I almost never want to see David Camp. Kind of <laughs> like that year where the Leafs were chasing a game and Frederick Gauthier kept getting regular shifts. So it, it's one of those things where there's value to having a defensive specialist. But you want to make sure you don't play him too much. So I gave him an A-. minus. That's pretty good, Gabe. Ian? Uh, sorry, Nick, would you have him? It's funny. I thought your grade was going to be lower than mine, Ian, uh, because I know you and I have talked about Camp quite a bit this year, uh, about like just what he, what he brings to the table and how valuable that is. But I actually gave him a B plus, a little bit lower than your grade. I think he's been good. I mean, when you look at his offensive zone faceoffs, it's at twenty percent right now. Like he's only had fifty four offensive zone faceoffs and two hundred and sixteen defensive zone faceoff starts. So. I mean, he's at around 50% in terms of expected goals right now. I do think that, you know, I always find it funny with defensive-like players in terms of how the fan base looks at them. Right now, and you can always look at the on-ice save percentage in terms of that. Like right now, he's getting 94% save percentage when he's on the ice. That's what the Leafs are getting. And goals are 20 to 14 for the Leafs. So I do expect that to kind of come down, especially when you consider the expected goals. But... 
I think Camp has just done his job this year. I think he's been he hasn't been adding any offense. I actually liked the signing in the summer when it first happened. And I think he's been kind of at expectation to just above expectation, I would say, especially my expectations. I don't really have very strong opinions about Camp. And I think that's kind of how it has to be, especially with a player like Camp, who's just so, you know, not not really an exciting player, but he just gets the job done. Yeah, I gave him, I was debating between A- and B+. I'll go B+. I mean, he, I do think he's exceeding my expectations a little bit, um, just in terms of, like, he can go out against some top competition and be successful. He can take a ton of defensive zone starts, and uh, as you said, Nick, he's like 53% expected goal. So the, the fact that he still has, he's still above water with, you know, those kind of minutes is, is impressive. Uh, as you said, Ian, I, I think he'd, he does have to be platooned. It's like almost like a, you know, the lefty-righty platoon in baseball, where in this case it's, you know, if you're if you're up or if it's tied, you play him. If, if you're behind, he doesn't see the ice. Um, but he, he's a valuable player. He's, he is a little bit better than I expected him to be. I was a little bit concerned with that signing. Um, but but the fact that he's you know being he, he's playing third line minutes essentially uh, and, and been successful in his role, he's quite good at that role. Um, I don't know if there's enough impact for me to say he's an A minus. Maybe if you if you really want to compare to expectations, but that B plus A minus range, is, I think, is about right because I do think that you know he is a valuable player. He's like he's actually someone that I don't mind having in the lineup. And heading into the season, I didn't know if he was going to be someone like Nick Ritchie, who I you know yelling about to, to take out. So so I, I think I'm I'm pretty happy with Camp for for what he makes and and. They do need. They did need that type of player for quite some time, especially on the penalty kill. So let's move on to because I think we're all in agreement on camp there. Let's move on to. I think this is going to be a pretty good grade. I want to. Let's start with Ian Andre Kasha. This is your boy. How many how many pluses am I allowed? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I'll calm down. Maybe I'll go B plus 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 plus. Uh, I'm a huge Kasha fan. I was so excited when they got him because even though he played what five games last year, I, in his prime back on Anaheim, he was a first line player in terms of his ability to impact play at five and five. Entries, exits, shot assists, shot generation. He was just he was a machine. The poor guy just can't stay healthy because he's a kamikaze every time he goes to the net. But I think playing him alongside David Camp is such an interesting combination. Not just because they've been on the same team since they were like five years old or whatever, dating back to their days in the Czech Republic. But Camp stays so high in the offensive zone. He's basically not involved with the play. Whereas Andre Kasha wants the puck on his stick, wants to skate it out of the defensive zone, skate it through the neutral zone, skate it into the offensive zone, skate it into the slot, and then generate a good scoring chance. I think he's basically been a one-man offense for that third line. When the third line doesn't have Andre Kasha, it gets a bit concerning in terms of, I don't know how they generate offense. I know sometimes you can go with that Engvall, Kampf, Mikheyev look where they're all super long and they force turnovers, but then every single shot is coming from the boards and it looks like the old Carolina Hurricanes who just, their their shot attempts were good, but their shot quality was awful. Uh, I love Andre Kasha. He even plays well when you move him higher in the lineup. I think there's a, a chance for him if he doesn't play on that Matthews line with Bunting. I kind of want to see what he looks like alongside DeVar's Nylander. I want to see him get a look there because of his ability to make plays up the ice as a transition player. Offensively, he can get himself to the slot and generate shot attempts at a high rate. And he can also recover loose pucks in the corner. I don't know if he can stay healthy for 82 games. I don't know if by the time we get to the playoffs, he'll even be an active player. But if he can... 
he's such a valuable player to this Leafs team, especially making, what, $1.25 million? That's a nice buy-low candidate there, and I'm really glad the Leafs got him. Nick? I'm going to give him an A. I think he's just been... He's just one of the most versatile players on the team. And I know that, Kevin, you and I always talk about Kerfoot being a Swiss Army knife. And I think that's Andre Kasha, and to a, even to a better extent, because Kasha can kind of do it all. He's got good playmaking. He's got a good shot. He can play. You can play him when the Leafs have the lead, when they're tied, when they're down. You can play him on the penalty kill. You can play him at five on five. You can play him on the power play. And he's effective at all of those things. This year, he stayed healthy, luckily. Um, you know, I, I've tweeted out that he leads the league in expected injuries per 60, and he's <laughs> running away. He's running away with that right now. Um, but, you know, if he can stay healthy, I mean, he's just so valuable to this team right now. Um, and I, I hope, like, I don't think they're going to re-sign a few of their free agents this um, offseason, and this is probably for a different podcast, but I would love to see them re-sign Andre Kasha, depending on what that cap hit is. Um, but... He's just been that valuable. So I think that, um, I think an A, Kevin, are you going into the A-plus range or are you going down? I'll go A-minus. Um, you know, I think I was debating between B-plus, which is what Ian gave, and, and an A. So I think that's kind of a good... I went B-plus, plus, plus. I'll go A-minus, minus, minus. Uh, yeah, I think, as you guys said, well-rounded, can kill penalties, a bit of a Swiss Army knife. I do think he's a bit shot-heavy, um, always has been. So I don't know if I loved him with Matthews, but... You know, they need someone to drive that third line offensively. You know, they're kind of missing it last year when Kapanen was gone. And, and, you know, just the fact that he's been healthy for the most part this year, I think, you know, that's what bumped him up to the A range for me. So um, definitely uh, quite happy with him. Uh, Ilya Mikhaev has only played 13 games. Can we all just give him an A? Like, it's, it's only, he's got seven goals in 13 games. I, I don't know if there's... What's his shooting percentage right now? I don't know. It's, it's got to um... be high. It's yeah, it's higher than last year. It's not that sky high though. Um, I think it's at around eleven. One sec, I can open it. Nineteen, nineteen percent. Oh, I'm looking that's, at five on five. That's actually. classic Makayev. It's been nineteen <laughs> every year, I think. <laughs> totally sustainable. I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think his six point five shooting percentage last year was real. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was gonna climb back up at some point. I don't think whatever he's doing right now is real, but. Uh, I don't know. I, I took a lot of over bets in terms of people saying, oh, McKayev's never going to score. I'm like, I don't know. He, he scored in his rookie season. Are we just assuming that was a fluke? This is kind of interesting. It might be a uh, – his five-on-five shooting percentage is is 11. Like, it's not that high, but on the power play, he scored only two goals. So this might be a small sample thing in terms of the, the that 18%. But I don't know. I think last year he was definitely snake-bitten. Like, I, the other thing is I don't know how many players – like in terms of zone starts, he had some of the toughest deployment last year. And how many players that had that type of deployment were known by the fan base as the guy that can't finish quality scoring chances? Like to me, just the fact that he had so many quality scoring chances despite his deployment was amazing. Yeah, I think just the points in general, 10 and 13 games, 7 goals in 13 games. You know, it's it's almost an incomplete because he hasn't really played much, but... So far, so good for Mikhaev. Are we all kind of in that similar range, A, A-? minus. Well, I went B because I don't know how much of it is real, but I'm still a big yeah. fan in terms of his ability to impact the game defensively. Yeah, okay. That one's tricky because it's 13 games, so <laughs> I think we're all, uh, we're all a little unsure in that one. Let's go, let's go quickly to more of the fourth-line players. Um, I want to start with Pierre Engvall, who's kind of you know sometimes third-line, sometimes fourth-line. Nick, I know you're an Engvall fan. 
let's hear your your grade for Engvall. Well, there's no podcast I'd rather be on right now than with you two talking about Pierre Engvall because I think we would be the the definitely the the presidents of the fan club. Um, but I think Engvall's been good. I gave him an A minus. I think he's been a positive influence whether he's been on the third line like they've looked really good in that shutdown role when Engvall's on the line and I love him playing center with Spezza we saw a decent sample last year of Engvall and Spezza being good together with Engvall being at center I've been crying out loud for Keefe to bring down uh, Engvall to the fourth line and move Spezza to the wing Um, as soon as they became healthy he did that and lo and behold that fourth line starts to produce points. Engvall's ability to transition the puck up the ice is exactly what this fourth line needed. So I don't know if he's in my playoff lineup just yet. We'll see what happens if they do add at the deadline. But I think that he would be a fantastic 13th forward, and he always finds his way to get it back into the lineup and to be a positive influence. So I gave him an A. I know he's not physical. Uh, I know that some people want a bit more kind of ferociousness from him, but I think he's valuable to this team. Ian? Okay, I, I think I'm on an island here, like like you guys. I think we're on the Pierre Engvall island together, just sharing our coconuts and uh, watching him <laughs> generate chances off the rush and shoot from the boards and drive everyone insane. But here's the thing. When you look at Camp Kasha when they played with Nick Ritchie, I think they were at 45% in terms of scoring chances. With Engvall, 56%. Spets on the fourth line was struggling to do much of anything for a while there. You put Engvall down there, they're at 59% expected goals. Camp... Uh, Mikheyev, without Kasha, couldn't generate any offense. With Engvall, tiny, tiny sample, but 72% expected goals. Wherever Engvall has gone this year, the line has done better. And I know that at six foot five, with his speed, you want him to be more physical. You want him to make better decisions off the rush. He's not going to. He's been this guy for too too long for to change. I think this is just who he is, but I think he's been one of their most effective bottom six players in the team. You're not going to play him with Matthews. I don't think you're going to play him with Tavares and Nylander, but you can play him anywhere in that bottom six, and the line gets north of 55% of the scoring chances. For my money, that's a really valuable player. So I'm going to give him an A, and I know people hate him. I don't care. I like him, and the evidence shows that he's good. <laughs> I'll give him an A as well. I mean, his, his 82 game pace right now is 36 points, which is pretty remarkable for Pierre Engvall. Um, he's, he's a good play driver, both offensively and defensively. And he's someone who can have success on either of those bottom six lines, as you mentioned, Ian. I think you could trust him defensively to play him with someone like Camp against top competition. You could also have him kind of drive a line from, from a transition perspective with Spets and Simmons. So that line's been lost without him. Um, they've been much better when they've had him to gain the zone for them and you know cover defensively for them. Um, so I think we're all we're all pretty high on Engvall. Obviously, he's not you know he's not a superstar but he's he's exceeded expectations this year and he's filling his role quite well so i think that's why we all had him in the a range um and in terms i think we're all giving nick ritchie an f i mean he's been on waivers i don't know if i need to hear your (laughs) i don't need to hear your explanations for what your ritchie grades i want to just i want to say a lot of sheldon keith quotes from earlier in the year about nick ritchie where it's like you know what he's really completing plays you know the next play off of ritchie's stick is onto another teammate's stick love his effort love his energy you know you're not realizing the impact he's making on the forecheck even when he doesn't pick up a point you know he's separating pucks so that the skilled players can come in I'm not even sure if Keith believed any of that. I think he was just trying to get the guy going. Yeah, I, I think so too. Especially given that he was getting scratched and out of the lineup. I, I think that like I don't even know when he's going to get a chance again. So 
we'll uh, we'll we'll skip Richie. I think that one's obvious enough. But let's go to the last two forwards here. Um, we won't get into the small guys like Alex Steves or Joey Anderson. Uh, but Pierre, uh, sorry, Jason Spezza and Wayne Simmons, two of the older players on the team. I'm going to group them together. Um, I don't know if you have the same grades. I don't know if you're on different spectrums with these guys. Nick, we'll start with you. Spezza and Simmons, where did you have them? Yeah, so I have Spezza as, at a C plus and Spe- Simmons as a C. It's tough with those guys because I think individually they played okay. But I can't, like, I'll say Simmons really quick. I think his skating's looked better than last year. I think his playmaking's looked a little bit better. With Spezza, I mean, he was never going to repeat what he did last year. It was a monster year. It was a historic year in terms of just how much he played and how many points he was producing at 5-on-5. Five five. But I can't ignore how that fourth line's looked. It's it's not been good this year. On many nights, they're only playing five or six minutes because Keith can't really trust them. Uh, Pete, with Engvall, they have looked better, and that's kind of what's kind of elevated them, I guess, into a C because I think for the most part, the fourth line just hasn't been very good. But, um, you know, I think in the second half of the season, it might be higher than the C. So that's what I'm hoping for. Okay. Ian? So I had high expectations for Spezza coming into this year. Like you said, he had an awesome year last year. He led the Leafs in points per 60 last year, both at 5-on-5 five five and at 5-on-4, five which is crazy on a team with Matthews, Marner, and company. So I don't know if I expect him to do that, but I expected him to produce, and he hasn't this year. 5-on-5, five five, he can't drive play. He's been brutal defensively. You, you expect him to be bad defensively, but you expect his ability to make passes and gain the zone and make plays off the rush and generate those slot passes. He started the season generating lots of slot passes, and that's basically stopped the last month or two. I get that I like him on PP2, but overall, I'm just I'm so disappointed with Spets. I gave him a D. That might be mean. That might be harsh, but I expect more out of him. I know he's a league minimum player and he's, you know, 38 years old, but based on what he did last year to what he's doing this year, it's just such a drop off. And to say I'm disappointed, I think would be an understatement. That fourth line is almost unplayable right now without Engvall. With Engvall, they're all of a sudden decent, but without Engvall, Spets and Simmons on the fourth line are really struggling. Uh, yeah. I can go to my Simmons grade if you want. Yeah, let's hear it. So it's almost the opposite. I, I didn't expect much of, of Simmons this year because last year I thought he was borderline unplayable. This year, like you said, his skating's much better. He's generating chances from the slot at a high level. The the five-on-five play driving in terms of his defensive impact, his ability to advance, play up the ice, it's not that good, but I don't think he ever expected it to be. For me, I, was just, I wasn't sure if Simmons was going to be one of the Leafs' best 12 players this year. I wasn't sure if you were going to be able to justify playing him, which made giving him a two-year contract and a no-trade clause, that made that a bit concerning. But I think he's been better than expected this year, so I gave him a B. So maybe this is an expectation thing for me. I expected Spezza to be really good, and I expected Simmons to be borderline unplayable and uh i'm just i'm really disappointed in spezza and i'm surprisingly impressed with simmons that's where i land right now yeah i gave spezza a c um part of that i think out of his control he probably shouldn't be playing center at his age but he is for whatever reason um he doesn't have a primary assist at five on five this year as as you guys said his five on five scoring is very impressive in previous seasons uh it's it's not so much, not very impressive at all this season. Um, you know, he is someone that, you know, maybe if he goes on the wing, he gets a little bit more offense, but he's not great defensively at center. Uh, you know, the, the line's results haven't been great. They've, they've basically been around the 50% expected goal mark. Um, and, and again, he, he, I did expect a little bit of a drop-off, maybe a little bit more than expected, uh, but I'll give him a C. And, and Simmons, I'm going to give a B. I do think he's actually 
either met or exceeded expectations, though I did have fairly low expectations heading into the year. Um, you know, he's, he's actually produced okay at 5-on-5, five five, quite well, actually. Um, you know, he's not getting a ton of power play time this year, but has done okay from for putting a pu- in terms of putting the puck in the net. He's got a lot of high-danger chances. Um, I do have concerns about him, whether it's, you know, playmaking or two-way play. Um, if they do go out and get someone at the deadline, I might want him out of the lineup or Spezza even, uh, given the way Engvall's playing and, and given how deep they are this year. Um, but I, I, I think we're all in this kind of a similar ballpark. Um, any, Nick, I'll, I'll let you comment here. Is, 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 are those fair for Simmons and Spezza or are you... Are you really pushing back for Simmons? I think it's more the expectations thing that we kind of bumped him a bit. No, I think with the expectations, actually, now that I think about it, I, I did come in with him being the 13th forward. And now I I don't, unless they make a huge improvement or he has a really bad second half, I, I do think he'd be in my playoff lineup. So maybe a C plus is a little bit harsh, but I don't know. I, I definitely expect the fourth line, especially if they have a center and they push Spets out, I expect that fourth line to just be a lot better um, in this second half. So I, I think I think that's all the forwards, though. I think we can move on to the D. Yep. Yeah, let's move on to the D. I'm going to do it in pairings again. So let's start with what's been their best pairing this season, Riley Brody. Uh, I don't need a grade for the pairing. You can do two separate if you'd like. Um, but Ian, we'll start with you. What did you have for Riley and Brody? I think this has been Riley's best season of his career because the year he exploded for points and goals, I don't, I didn't think that was real. He tripled his career average in shooting percentage. That was never going to last. This year, he's dominating at a sustainable rate. He's controlling play against the other team's best players. He's producing at an elite rate offensively, but he's getting back and not giving up nearly as many odd man rushes. I was reading one of Jack Hahn's, uh, one of his... What's the name of the book that he put out where he has the visuals showing of how teams attack off the rush and how they attack off the cycle. And he had a really good diagram in there showing how Riley attacks off the rush. He hops into the play. He'll make a pass off the rush after gaining the zone. And then he'll fly around the net and skate as fast as he can back to make sure that he's not giving up that odd man rush. I'm so impressed with his ability to do that because we've all known what he's been as an offensive player in terms of what he can do when he hops up into the play, whether it's as the trailer or sometimes he even leads the rush offensively. He's one of the best zone entry players among defensemen in the NHL. I think only Roman Yossi is consistently ahead of him in that regard. I gave him an A because... I love what he's done offensively, but more than anything, I love that he's not giving up as much defensively. I know TJ Brody really helps in that department, but I think Riley deserves a lot of credit for positioning himself in a way where he can generate the offense himself by activating into the play and and making plays with the puck from the left wall, but he's also skating himself back into spots where it's a two-on-two instead of a two-on-one, and he wasn't doing that before, and I love it. And how about Brody? Are you still in the A range, or do you go in the Bs? I'll go A minus. Uh, I th- I thought he was yeah. better last year, but I think he's still excellent this year in terms of his ability to defend the rush, take away the middle of the ice. He's re- he's really helped me look at defensemen in a different way in terms of what I value in defensemen. I value the ability to defend the rush. And what do I mean by that? I mean, killing plays early in the neutral zone, but also if the other team does gain the zone, you take away that middle lane. You don't let them clean, complete that pass through the middle of the ice. And you, we can all picture Brody sliding on a two on one to take away that lane. He's so good at that. And, the, and that's such a valuable play because going East West on those passes, that's where you turn a 10% shot into a 40% shot. And Brody's so good at not giving you that 40% shot. So I went a minus on Brody. Okay. Nick. Yeah, so with Riley, I'll go on A as well. 
I think we, we all know how good he is with the puck, and we all know how good he is offensively. And just when you look at the metrics, I mean, it's one of his best seasons at 5-on-5 five five in terms of point production. In terms of defensively, like, my big problem with Riley is I felt that he was jumping up into the offense a bit too much for my liking, especially when you looked at the state of the game. Like, I, I, I didn't really like how he'd jump up into the play when they were up for the lead in the third. It just felt like he never really had a switch there. And for, for whatever reason, I mean, since he's signed the contract, Riley's been amazing. And I, I hardly see any two-on-ones against Brody anymore. Um, I think he's a lot more selective in terms of jumping up into play. He's still kept that offensive, you know, eliteness about him. He's still one of the best players in terms of breaking out uh, the play for the Leafs. So I got to give him an A. I'm not crazy about the contract still. Like the, the, the contract hasn't even started and it's a bit of a long term. But this is about this season and I've really liked Riley's play this year. I give them both A minuses. So they're both around the 54% expected goal mark, which is quite strong. Uh, Riley's actually north of 60% in terms of the actual goal differential when he's on the ice. Uh, you know, Riley's point production is quite strong, as Ian said, and he's not as bad defensively as he used to be. He, he seems to be a little bit better in that regard. Um, that's a pairing that might end up getting top competition come playoff time, um, just given the way they're playing. Uh, and they really complement each other well. Brody, even though he's not physical, I mean, amazing stick-on-stick defender, uh, strong penalty killer, just exactly what the Leafs needed for years. It was really the perfect signing. And then Morgan Riley definitely could have been an all-star this year, just, you know, the point production... His ability to kind of drive offense from the back end, and uh, and also you know not terrible defense. Let's put it that way. So I think we're all kind of in the same boat. There's not much, too much to complain about um, in that pairing. But let's get to one. Can I, I can I quickly end... say something about Riley? Just one more yeah, positive no. here. He has more points per sixty at five and five than Adam Fox and Kale McCarr. I think he should have been an all star. Wow. I think he's been amazing this year. That is a good stat. I did not expect that. Um. Okay, I want to end on Muzzin Hall because I feel like that one's going to be the longest. Let's go to let's quickly go through the the third pairing guys. So uh, probably the, the the highest grade I'm imagining for both of you is going to be Rasmus Sandin. Uh, very high in terms of expected goal differential. Um, maybe not as much points as you might have expected. He's, he's playing on power play two instead of power play one, but you know the play driving numbers are insane. Ian, that seems to be right up your alley for a good grade. So what'd you give Sandin? Yeah, so here's the other tough part is, remember how much I fell in love with Travis Dermott because of him dominating in third pair of minutes? And I just said, hey, this is amazing. Guys who do this, there's a a good sample of guys who can go on and do better in in those big minutes. And we've seen Sandin go up and try to play in second pair of minutes, and it hasn't gone quite as well. But I know Jonas Siegel also wrote an article recently that said, hey, Sandin's done all right in these minutes. How long before he's actually ready for that role? Because Jake Muzzin's obviously struggled this year, and Sandin's been absolutely destroying third pair of minutes. If you look at expected goals, scoring chances, when Sandin's on the ice for Toronto on the third pair, it's the best third pair in hockey. It doesn't matter who he's playing with. He could be playing with Dermott, Lilligren, or Hall. He's, he's dominating play. So I think that's very good evidence that he's the independent variable there. He's the one who's dictating play. Uh, you look at some of the passing metrics. He's among the leaders in exits, uh, shot assists, passes that cross the slot in the offensive zone. I think it's indicative of his vision and his ability to make passes at a high level. Defensively, below the dots in the defensive zone against the other team's top six. That's where you get a bit worried with him, and that's where the development's still going to need to come. But... 
for what he is right now in terms of a third pairing guy that you want to go out there and dominate shifts, he's been killing it. So I gave him an A. I want to see him prove it against the other team's best players because that's what's going to earn him more minutes. But I think he's closer to getting there than people are willing to admit. I know you'll think of a few instances where he's screwed up defensively or he's turned the puck over on a breakout and it costs them a goal against. But I think anytime we evaluate defensemen, we focus way too much on the big mistake. I know this is a big Tyler Dello thing where you'll remember that one turnover that went in the back of the net, but you won't remember the nine clean passes out of the zone that led to you dominating play. And that's why Sandin has a 66% expected goal rate when he's on the ice with whether it's Dermot or Lilligren, because if you complete passes at a high rate, you're going to have the puck more often than not. And I think Sandin's emblematic of that possession style of hockey that Toronto wants to play, and he's so good at it. So I gave him an A. Big fan of him. I'm guessing you guys are too. Nick? A+. plus. I think he's just been fantastic this year. I... When, when you compare it to Dermot, I do, like, they both crushed those third-line minutes. I know Dermot, that was, like, two or three years ago where I think all three of us were going crazy about him. And this year, when you look at Sandine, I, I do think that the fact that he's played top four minutes, I think he's looked pretty good in them. Um, I don't think he's kind of hit it out of the ballpark, but I also don't expect that from a 21-year-old. I think he's been pretty good with Muzzin, with sorry, with Hall. Uh, this past week and a half and even when he plays with TJ Brody like even last year I thought that line was really that pairing was really good so I mean I do think Sandine even at his best is going to be a little prone to mistakes especially if there's any turnovers in his own end like we can all remember that I think it was Paul Byron goal last year Uh, I think it was game one or game two and Sandine couldn't really catch up to him like he's not a great straightaway skater so I do think he's going to be a little prone to those types of mistakes and those kind of spotlight mistakes where everyone kind of remembers them but I mean when you look at him this year he's been fantastic he's been a positive impact whether he's played with Dermot whether he's played with Lilligren whether he's played with Hall he's been good on the power play um, I love that he he's he's been a, a sneaky physical player for years now and it's it's cool to see kind of Leafs fans really appreciate that because he was a pretty physical player on the Marlies too so I'm giving him an A plus especially for a 21 year old he's just been fantastic yeah, I'll give him an A. Um, I think, as Ian said, it's not quite you know top four, which probably would have given him the A+. But just the results when he's on the ice are fantastic. I know Dermot had a lot of success in the third-pairing role. I don't know if he had this much success. Like, Sandin's over 61% expected goals. We just kind of complained about the fourth line not being able to you know win easy minutes. And I, I do think there's definitely value in having someone like Sandin there that's you know just dominating against easier in, in easier minutes. We'll see about the top four. Obviously, his speed might get exposed a bit more in terms of you know defending the zone. Um, but I, I think even though the points aren't there, he generates so much offensively. He's, he's got wicked vision, very good passer on his backhand, protects the puck well. Um, I, I do think that he's he's poised for a big second half. And you know you just look at the play driving numbers and they're off the chart. So you can't really ask for more from a third pairing guy from a young defender. Uh, I do think that, yes, we're going to have to have a separate discussion maybe in the offseason if he can move up in the lineup or not. Uh, but for now, you know, so far so good this season. So uh, A's across the board. I think I heard an A-plus there. Uh, I'm going to group two guys together that, you know, they've played a little bit together. They used to play on the Marlins together. That's Dermot and Lilligren. I'm not really sure what to give them for grades, to be honest. So I'm probably going to listen to you guys and, and make my grades accordingly. But let's start with you, Nick. What did you have for, for first Dermot and second Lilligren? So Dermot, I'll give him a C. I think if you're looking at it based on expectation, 
Like, I expected Dermot to at least kind of have the upper hand over Sandine and Lilligren, especially at the midpoint of the season. I think right now, I would probably have Dermot as the seventh defenseman. I think he's looked pretty good on the right side next to Sandine. But other than that, I haven't been that impressed with him. And I kind of think about, you know, what is Travis Dermott at this point? Like, he's, he's not a player that can play on the power play. He's not going to be a very good penalty killer. Like, you can't trust him in those minutes. I don't know if you can trust him if the Leafs have the lead. He's prone to some mistakes. He is very good at transitioning the puck up and down, uh, up the ice. But I don't know how much value that has when, when you also have Sandy and Lilligren and Riley on your team. So I gave him a C just based on expectations. It's tough because I really like the player and he just seems like a cool guy. But I think, I don't know what his future is with this team at this point. And Lilligren? Uh, Lilligren, I gave him an B plus actually. So based on expectations, I think coming into the season, we knew he was going to get a at least a shot at being an NHL player and he was going to get, you know, a ton of minutes. I think he's done pretty good with them. I think he's a third pairing right-handed defenseman at this point. Um, I, I wouldn't push him next to Muzzin right now in the top four against top competition. And I think that's okay. You know, he's still 22 years old. He's still young. Um, I love his defending and transition. I love the way that he can move the puck. I like him in the offensive zone as well. So I do think there's going to be some growing pains, but I definitely think that's so far so good for Lilligren this year. Okay. Ian, where'd you have Lilligren and Dermot? So with Dermot, I feel like I'm talking about a child I'm disappointed in. <laughs> that I've raised over the last few years. I'm only four years older than Dermot, so maybe it's more of like a little brother that I just, you know, I, I really thought that he had that potential to move up into the top four. He got a stint with Riley this year, and they were around 40% expected goals, so... I think that says everything you need to say about Dermot trying to move up into the top four and not succeeding. There's an interesting stat here. Dermot Lilligren together weren't that great in third pair minutes. They were above water. I think they were about 52%. But you look at Sandine Dermot or Sandine Lilligren, all of a sudden they're like 64, 65%. Sandine just dominates when he's on the ice, whereas Dermot and Lilligren individually, they're not the ones carrying the pairing. It's Sandine who carries that third pairing. So... Dermot, I'm going to go the same thing. I'm going to go about a C because I've wanted to see him take that next step in his development. We know he can shake the first four checker, move the puck up the ice. I don't even think he's shaken the first four checker that much this year, which is supposed to be the biggest part of his game, his edges. I, I haven't loved that. In the offensive zone, he's not doing much of anything, which has been the biggest problem with his development over the last few years. His rookie season, he had a phenomenal point production rate. He was one of the better offensive defensemen in the league in terms of third-pairing usage guys. Ever since then, he's been one of the worst point producers among defensemen in the NHL. So disappointed in Dermott's uh, lack of uh, evolving his game, both in terms of he didn't improve defensively in his own end. He's not trusted on the penalty kill. He's not trusted against other teams' good players. And then offensively, he's not that good in the offensive zone at generating offense. So what is he? I don't really know. I, I would have been interested to see what a Dermott-Alexiak pairing looked like in Seattle. You know, I would have been interested to see what he looked like as the primary puck mover on a second pairing, but we never really got to see that in Toronto, and I think he kind of is what he is, a number 7D right now. So I gave him a C. I'll give Lilligren a B. Similar mentality where it, I think individually those two have been similar as players, but the expectation is that Dermot has been in the NHL for a while and you wanted to see him take a next step. Lilligren, you weren't really sure what you were going to get because he's been on the Marlies for the last few years. And I've been impressed with his ability to move the puck. And for the most part, I've been impressed with his ability to defend the rush. But he's been exposed a bit over the last month or so in terms of going up against tougher competition and not handling it as well. One interesting stat on Lilligren, though, is that 
when you look at uh, your minutes against elite competition, you can do this at puckiq.com. His uh, ability to control quality chances against tough competition has been much better than someone like Rasmus Sandin. And so I think Lilligren has the potential to move up the lineup and actually handle shifts in his own end against the other team's best players, even though I can think of instances where he's blown it and he's turned it over or he's missed an assignment in front. I still think there's potential there for Lilligren to be a guy that you can trust against the other team's best players. And I didn't think that would be the case watching for the Marlies over the last few years. So I'm uh, pleasantly surprised by his development. I still think he has some room to grow offensively. I don't think he's, that great to be honest but it's his two-way play as a transition player that i like so i gave him a b okay so i'm gonna give lilligren a b plus just because coming into the year we didn't know if he'd be starting with the leaps or marley's i think the makayev injury is really what gave him a, a roster spot to start of the year um not i always thought he could be a solid third pairing guy um but he's at 58 and a half percent expected goals which is quite strong he's jumping up in the play more right now uh he's at least you know, sometimes with Muzzin, he's, he's looked okay. Like, I, I do think he might have some top four potential because of his ability to, you know, defend off the rush and, and be competent offensively. So I'll give him a B plus, just, you know, slightly above expectations. I'll give Dermot a C plus. Still has decent results. You know, 56% expected goals at 5 on 5 uh, which is quite strong considering that, that, you know, stretch with Riley that didn't go so well. I'll give him a little bit of credit for being able to play the right side because he's, he had been on the left for so long, he mainly played on the right side this year. Um, but, you know, he is, I think we know what he is at this point. He's a third pairing guy. Um, but I do like that he can play either side. So that's, I guess that's a, a one, one positive I'll add to that. But, you know, a third pairing guy that doesn't play either special teams is, is going to get you kind of in that, you know, low B to, to C range, I'd say, uh, most years. So, Let's get on to the, maybe the more juicy one, and that's that's the Muzzin-Hall pairing. Um, they, they haven't had as much success as they had in, in previous seasons. Um, obviously, you know, Justin Hall maybe isn't like a, a completely proven top four defender, but it seemed to work in previous years, a little bit less so this year. Uh, but I'm interested to see how you guys maybe divvy up the blame for that. Are you giving Muzzin a bad grade and Hall a good grade? Are you giving them both bad grades? Uh, Ian, let's start with you on this one. I want to hear your thoughts on Muzzin Hall. Okay, so they started the year terribly, like absolutely brutal. And then Jack Hahn brought something up that made me dive into the numbers, and it's it's actually borne out to be really interesting in terms of when you look at the Leafs when they had their 1-2-2 neutral zone four check in play, and then they switched to a 1-1-3. And what does that mean? So that means that instead of having just Muzzin and Hall as the last two guys back when defending the rush. After around November-ish, I don't know exactly when they made the change, but it was sometime in November, they brought a third forward back to help cover the blue line, and that helps if, let's say, Muzzin misses his man off the rush, which he's been doing a lot this year. And in years past, Muzzin's been one of the better rush defenders in the NHL, despite his slow foot speed. He's such he's so good at positioning himself, sealing off the wall, finishing his check, and forcing a dump in. This year, he's been getting beat on his side of the ice, but now there's an extra forward there to help cover for that. So I have some numbers to bring up here. Before the change, so I went December 1st as my cutoff because I wasn't quite sure when they made the change. I know it was in November. Before the change, Muzzin was at 52% expected goals. Hall was at 51% expected goals. After the change, Muzzin's at 55% expected goals. Hall's at 59% expected goals. So I think Justin Hall has been sneaky good this year 
despite how bad things were to start the year. So I'm giving Hall a B plus. That's going to be my hot take is that I think Justin Hall has been surprisingly good this year, despite what our memories kind of think of him. Jake Muzzin's a tougher one because I'd, I have such high expectations for him and he hasn't met them. So maybe I'll go C minus for Jake Muzzin because I still think there's a lot more he has to give there. Is this just the effect of aging plus injuries to a 32 year old at this point in time? Maybe, but I'd like to think that he has more game to give there because we've seen him play so much better in the as recently as last season. Nick, where'd you have Muzzin and Hall? I'm going to have them a bit closer. I think Hall I'll have as a B and Muzzin as a B minus. I'm also higher on them as a pairing, um, I feel like, than most of the fan base. Like, when you look at just, like, they've had some really bad on-ice save percentage this year. It's at just under 90%, so it's 89.95. Their expected goals has actually been pretty good. It's around 52%. Last year, they were at about a 59%. So if you were expecting that again, I think, you know, I think you're going to be disappointed. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I was expecting them to replicate that because they've just been pretty good the last two years, like really good. I do think the first couple of weeks, as you said, Ian, they were bad. They were borderline unplayable, especially against other teams' top lines. Since the, I should tweet this out, I think two weeks ago it's only been about four or five maybe five or six games of a sample but after the new year when they all came back Muzzin and Hall at a time were actually the best pairing I think they were just around 60 percent um that's actually pretty cool about the that uh change in their tactics um I never noticed that but that it makes sense they still have the same deployment I think that Muzzin and Hall depending on how Muzzin comes back I think that's the pairing they should go with in terms of going up against top competition. Um, maybe it splits a little bit more with Riley Brody, but I think that the Leafs still need to trust that that pairing because, you know, we've seen Muzzin and Lilligren together. I don't really like it. I like Hall there better. I think they've looked better in terms of their skating. Right now, it really just depends on what condition is Muzzin going to be when he gets back. Is he going to be 100% healthy? Um, if he's not, then maybe you look to, to add a top four defenseman, which maybe this is a good segue, but... Um, I think just a B, B minus is, is kind of where I'm at with them. And Nick, can I quickly just fact check you on one thing there? Just because I know how much we care about our nerdy numbers here on this podcast. So I just want to make sure we're, 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 be, we're giving the right facts here. So last year, Muzzin Hall, I'm at Money Puck right now. They were 55% in XG. Riley Brody last year, 55% XG. Dermot Bogosian, 56.6. So like they, they, they had three really good pairs last year. This year, if we're looking at the high minutes pairs, Riley Brody are at 55. Muzzin Hall are just shy of 53, so they've come down a little bit. And Sandine mm. Guy has been 64, 65%. So that Sandine third pair has been awesome. But it's that Muzzin Hall pair that has dropped off a little bit. You'd like to see them be a bit better. But if you look at them since the tactical change to the neutral zone four track, they've been much better than everyone thinks. They've been above 55%. Yeah, and I think that goals, I think that goals differential kind of, I think it's... They've definitely been outscored when they've been on the ice at five on five. Um, I know it's under fifty percent, so I do think that that you know that on ice save percentage might bring them down in terms of people's eyes right now. But uh, hopefully that tends to drive up towards the expected goals as well. Yeah, it's the descriptive versus predictive aspect of things. I'm always focusing on predictive, and I never understand why someone has this opinion of a player. I go, "What do you mean? They've been bad." But oh wait, the goals have gone in. My mistake. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, Nick, what were your grades there, sorry? Sorry, so for Muzzin, I had a B-, and for Hall, I had a B. Okay, so I'm going to go I'm gonna go B- for Hall. 
Um, I, I, I think, I think the start was was pretty terrible for him. Like you know, tactics aside or formation aside, he was pretty bad. Just you know, plain and simple. Um, I think recently it's definitely been better, but Muzzin hasn't been here, which which you know is, is still a question in terms of how they're going to play down the stretch. Um, I'll give him a B minus. I, I do think you look, you look at the play driving numbers; they're about as as what you'd expect. He's done okay in, in tougher minutes, uh, but the start was just so bad. So that's keeping him from a B for me. Um, he probably would have been in the C range uh, before the last couple weeks. Um, Muzzin, I'm going to give a D plus two. Uh, and the reason is it's just because I, I have very high expectations for him. Um, you look at his play driving numbers year after year after year, very strong. And they're not terrible this year, but by his standards, they're terrible. Like, they're about mediocre and, you know, what they're paying him. And, and he's such a key player for this team that, you know, you need him to be at his best come playoff time if, if this team's going to make a deep playoff run. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's been fine, but I, I think just we have very – it's just an expectations thing with him. Um, you know, you expect him to be, you know, a borderline Team Canada contender, um, and he just hasn't been this year. So, you know, I'm, I'm not saying he's like useless. With that in mind, I think this is where the real question comes into play. Do you trust Muzzin Hall to figure it out, and that'll be your second pair going into the playoffs, or do you need to trade for a right side defenseman to help elevate Muzzin's play? Well, that's a good transition because I was going to ask you guys that. We're going to skip goalies. Campbell A, Mrazic C, C plus. He's only played Incomplete. nine games. But it, in terms of the, in terms of this pairing, I think this is really the, the key question because we saw them for two straight years have a fair amount of success. And I'll say that in the Columbus series and in the Montreal series, scoring was the main issue, not the Muzzin Hall pairing. So I I, I think you are going to take as much time as you can in order to evaluate that pairing so i would go back to muzzin hall as soon as muzzin's back um and, and you see what they can do over 10 games and make your decision from there uh, obviously it probably hasn't really gone to, according to plan this year they they have more potential we've seen them be better as a pairing um but i'm not i'm not convinced either way at this point like i'm not convinced i'm gonna like that shutdown pairing come playoff time and i'm not convinced that they 100% need to go out and, and overpay for, for someone to, you know, fill that role. So I, I guess if, if the right player comes along and you get a bargain, I, I'd be open to making a trade. But for now, I, I want to see Muzzin Hall for another 10-plus games and, and evaluate. Nick, where are you on that? I just think that a lot of their decisions right now are going to depend on what Muzzin's condition is. Um, you know, we know that he had the concussion uh, he hasn't returned back to play. I, I I don't even know if we should put out of the question that they put him on LTIR once the All Star break is done. Like like we don't really know what condition he's in. If if he comes back and he's you know close to 100, percent I would probably not look to to you know give up key assets for a top four defenseman. I would probably just go back to Muzzin Hall. I thought that they were looking a little better after and and Ian, you were even saying the stats like objectively they were better. I would go back to them if Muzzin's close to 100%. If he's not, then you, I think you really have to look at the options out there, even though it's not a very large market in terms of right-handed defensemen in the top four, uh, just top four defensemen in general. I don't know if it's really worth it for the Leafs. So that's where I'm at right now. Like I, I, I think you go back to Muzzin and Hall if, if, if Muzzin's kind of healthy. But if not, then I think it gets interesting. 
Ian, where are you with that? So there are only three guys that I would trade for, and they're all named Ben Sherratt. No. Okay, so the actual <laughs> defenseman that I would want the Leafs to acquire. Damon Severson is someone that I still rate very highly, and I know that he had two bad games against the Leafs. That two-on-one defense, that's how I play in Chell. Terrible. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, Steve Dangle, Myrtle, Mikey Stevens, my, my BFFs and playing NHL 22, they scream at me every time I do that in Chell, and I do it very often. I'm, I'm not good at defending two-on-ones, but... Despite that mistake, and despite turning the puck over behind the net, if you look at his last 168 games in the NHL over the last three seasons, he's had a largely above-average impact on impacting shots for, scoring chances for, scoring chances against, and shots against. He impacts play in the right direction, but the goals for do not go in. How much of that do you blame on a defenseman for not impacting shooting percentage? We have a long track record of defensemen not being able to repeatably impact shooting percentage. So based on that, I would say Severson is a high-end puck mover and an ability to consistently impact the ice. Sorry, tilt the ice at 5-on-5 five five and get his forwards the puck. I blame his forwards in New Jersey over the last few years for not converting on those chances. And I still see Severson as someone who, over the last three years, has played top four minutes and done really well in those minutes. So... He's someone that if I'm looking at so, trading for someone, I pick Severson. Uh, I look at Scott Mayfield, who has two years left on his contract this year and one more. If I'm the Islanders, I wouldn't trade him because I, I think that I can maybe turn things around next year and get a Barry Trotz team to defend really well. And he's done well in a top-pairing role alongside Adam Pellick at tilting the ice. Uh, I, I'm maybe a bit worried that Scott Mayfield isn't a great puck mover. And if you play him with Jake Muzzin, who's also not a great puck mover... You might get stuck in your own end a bit too often, but those are two guys that I trust against the other team's best players to defend well. And the third guy that I, I'm interested in, but not as interested as the rest of Leafs fandom, Josh, May- Josh Manson. He's got one year left on his contract. He's a rental. If the Ducks aren't making a playoff push, they might look at moving him. I like Josh Manson. He's not what he was a few years ago. Josh Manson used to be one of the better defensemen in hockey. That Lindholm-Manson pairing was absurd for a few years there. He's fallen off a little bit. He's still what I would call a a number four defenseman. I wouldn't call him a number three. I'd call him a number four right now. You can trust him against the other team's better players. He's physical. He's strong. Not an elite puck mover. And again, him and Muzzin on the same pair, I might look at switching the pairings at that point. I might look at a Riley Manson, Muzzin, Brody pairing. But again, you don't want to mess with what Riley Brody have. So that's why Damon Severson still makes the most sense to me of all these guys who are available because he's a puck mover. That's what he is first and foremost. And I think you play that alongside Jake Muzzin, they'd have some nice synergy together. So that's my thoughts on the defenseman. Nick, where are you at on, on the Leafs? If they were to trade for a right-side defenseman, who are you looking at? So I'm actually I, I like those players. I don't know, given the state of the Leafs right now. I think they've been pretty good defensively this year. Like even if you look at the metrics, like at all strengths, they've been a top ten team in terms of expected goals against per sixty. I would actually look to to you know kind of make a big trade for a forward. Um, if they are going to make a def- going to trade for a defenseman, I I do think. I would probably look just for like a depth defenseman that could play next to Sandine on the third pair. Uh, Kevin, I know you tweeted about Ilya Labushkin, my boy. I would love to see him kind of on a third pair next to Sandine. Um, Luke Shen's been thrown around. I don't know. 
how much I love that. But I think next to Sandine, that would look okay. I think it'd give me PTSD of the Leafs games back in the day. But um, obviously, he was a decent part of the Lightning winning the Cup last year. So I would probably go on a little bit of some lower end options on D because... I mean, all in all, I do know Lilligren, Dermott, and Hall haven't been perfect this year, but I can't remember the last time the Leafs have had, you know, seven legitimate NHL defenders um, in their roster. So I would be okay with going with this group right now and just maybe adding a guy for that third pairing that can kind of, you know, kind of play the Bogosian type, play some penalty killing minutes, play with Muzzin when they have the lead late in games. That's kind of the direction I would go. But again, if Muzzin is even not close to 100%, I would love to see a guy like Severson on the team because we've seen quite recently that he, when he's on the ice, Leafs score. So if that can continue (laughs) when he's he's on the team, then I'd love that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still, so I'm still, I'd still like Severson. I've seen enough of him, um, but he was absolutely terrible against the Leafs in those two games. Um, I did, I've been watching a decent amount of the Devils. I've seen him be the best player on the ice. I don't know what happened those two games, but I will vouch that you know, he's a, he's a solid player. I think as Ian said, he's, he's a pretty good puck mover. He's a pretty good transition defender. He's got some size. He could play power play or penalty kill. Um, not that he would play power play for the Leafs, but he does for the Devils. Um, just a well-rounded player for the most part. I think he'd be a good fit to play with Mazin, just skill set-wise. So, you know, if, if Saverson's available, I'd be interested. Now, they don't have to trade him, of course. Uh, they are a team that is going to try to win next year. They have a lot of young players that... Um, you know, Severson could help them try to make a playoff push. Uh, I think it's a very good one too with with Dougie Hamilton for next season once Hamilton returns from injury. They'll have so, more cap space after that Subban contract runs out this year. Yeah, so I, I think it's a tough. It, it, you do have to pay them to make it worth their while. They're not like in a. It's not. He's not like he's a one year rental where they almost have to move him. Uh, I could see them trying to extend him beyond next season as well. Um, so if the price is right, I'm, I'm interested in Steverson. Um, Manson, I like for the most part. I think he's a good, like he's actually a fine puck mover for a defensive defenseman. He's really strong around the net. He's decent in transition. I think he'd be a good fit. I think we've been saying this for years. Um, don't know if I want to give up a first for him as a pure rental. Um, not sure if that's ideal. Like it's kind of like last year when. You know, we talked about Felino. I don't know if that's plan A for me. Ian, would you give up a first for Manson? No, but I would for Severson because of the two years and the likelihood that you yeah. probably resign him afterwards. See, I think Manson's going to take a first, um, which, you know, if it's if you're in the last seconds of the deadline and you haven't done anything, I'd consider it, I guess. Like, if that's, like, the last, if that or nothing. But I don't know if that's, I wouldn't make that trade today, though. I not for not as a rental. Yeah, and from an asset management perspective, I've always loved how Dubis tries to avoid rentals. I mean, the Nick Felino trade aside, I mean, in, in years, the, the Muzzin trade is a perfect example of how you maximize your assets. Where you give up a first, you give up what a B level prospect, a B plus level prospect, and you get a player that's going to give you two cup runs and a very good chance at re-signing that player for more cup runs. I think that's the right way to use your assets. Yeah, so I, <clears throat> I think we're similar there. Um, in terms of a depth defenseman, I think Labushkin would be a good one. I guess the only the only thing is is that you know the third pairing's been outstanding this year. So to go out and get a third pairing guy, you know, is it going to move the dial? I'm not sure. A guy like Mayfield, I don't know how much he moves the dial over someone like Justin Hall. Um, or if, if you're going to put you know Mayfield Muzzin, I don't know if they have enough puck moving ability. 
Um, so you're of the opinion that it's Pellich and the Barry Trot system that's that's getting Mayfield his good results, not Scott Mayfield. Mayfield's results aren't like through the roof. They're like like his play driving numbers are like okay. They're not like anything special. Um, I I don't know. Like I, I think Hall's a, a decent player. I, I think Mayfield might be kind of similar to Hall in terms of ability. Um, I do. It is a player I need to watch more. I haven't watched a ton of the Islanders, but. I don't know if he's going to move the dial enough to the point where I want to pay a, a, a haul again for two years. Um, you know, Labushkin, sure. Like, if it's going to be like a mid-round pick, and you're going to just add another guy to the the fold, like a little bit more than Ben Hutton, um, I'm, I'm in for that. Obviously, that wouldn't be their big addition. Um, yeah, more than Ben Hutton sounds like a good <laughs> idea. I think we're all out on Klingberg just because. You know, the cost is going to be high, and he's not really the best fit stylistically, more offensive. I think he's he's basically Tyson Berry right now, which is, I, I hope you learned your lesson from that. Yeah, maybe, I think he's a little better than Berry, but I, I think that's... I, I agree, I just mean in terms of, like, power play value and a guy that you don't trust out there against the other team's best players. Like, I don't know, would Muzzin Klingberg work? It might, but I'd be concerned about Klingberg in the defensive zone against the other team's best players. Yeah, and then there's there's other options. Calvin DeHaan, Mark Giordano, Hampus Lindholm, all lefties. Um, so they're in on DeHaan. Do they see him as someone who can slide over to the right side? Because I don't see the point of adding another lefty defense. It's yeah, the same reason I'm out on Chikrin because yeah, you have Riley, Muzzin, Sandin. Like that's that's kind of set, isn't it? Uh, yeah, so I think DeHaan would likely play the right side in that scenario. It is interesting that when they went and acquired Muzzin, they already had Riley Gardner on the left side, so I wouldn't rule out Dubas from from acquiring a lefty. Um, but you know, maybe someone like Colin Miller is an example. I'd be interested in more of the guys with term if I'm going to be paying quite a bit. So um, Severson came to mind. Dylan DeMello, um, he makes about three million for the next two and a half years. I think he'd be a decent fit. Matt Roy, I think, would be expensive, but might be worth checking into given. I like DeMello a lot because the Jets don't seem to value him anywhere near where his on-ice results say they should, so mm-hmm. I think you might be able to get him for less than what he's actually worth. I think you might be able to put Richie in that deal, too. I don't know if they even like the contract. <laughs> giving Richie yeah. to every team in the league. <laughs> no, like you have to pay to give up Richie, but maybe if you did like Richie in a first for DeMello, it could end up being, I don't know. Um, Matt Roy is someone who's I think is very good on the Kings. Um, the they have Doughty, they have Brent Clark coming, they have Sean Walker, they have Sean Dursey, so they have a lot of Rays. Uh, they have Brock Faber, Helker Kranz, they're just stacked on the right side. Don't know what the cost would be, you might be giving up a top prospect, but I'd at least inquire. Carson Soucy can play the right side, he's got an extra year left. You know, I, Those are the guys I'd be interested in. But I'm, Nick, I want to get your thoughts on, I know you mentioned you'd be more interested in trading for a forward. I, I do think that if you added a you know legitimate top four defender, it it make any team better, including the Leafs. But you know there is a realistic possibility that you know the price of Manson's through the roof. Severson they don't want to move, um, and, and you know Klingberg's not the best fit. Like maybe there is definitely a scenario where you know there's not really a good defenseman available that's a real difference maker. So. What do you what do you think the odds are that they acquire their big addition or their biggest addition is a forward rather than a defense? If you're going to put like a percentage chance, Nick, what would you put? Oh, it's tough. Um, like I said before, I do think that Muzzin injury plays a big role into it. If I look into the past, I would say, and just kind of Dubis's, I guess, patterns in terms of what he's acquired, I guess I would say, and just the state of the team in general, I guess I would kind of lean towards a forward. So I'll go 60-40. I do think that the 60 would be acquiring a forward. I think that's what they should do. 
um, when you look at the mm-hmm. rumors around like what Chris Johnson said, and I know some of the other, I guess, insiders, Frank Valley, they've all said that the Leafs have been interested in defensemen. So that's a bit surprising. I guess they know more about kind of the, the, the health of Muzzin, obviously. But so I'll say 60-40. One thing that's interesting about this trade deadline is the teams that are going to make the playoffs that are in a playoff spot right now, they're in a playoff spot, especially when you look at the East, like the eight teams that are going to make the playoffs, they're pretty set. I think that we haven't really seen seasons like this where like, I would say there's at least 10 to 12 teams in the NHL who probably are going to be ready to be sellers at the deadline at that time. And there's probably 10 or 12 teams in the NHL that probably feel like they could win the cup this year. And they're pretty confident, and so there's so many hundred point teams in the NHL this year. It's crazy. It's ridiculous, and the, and yeah, it's, it is nuts. I think it's the ingredients for a pretty uh, exciting trade deadline. I hope that they deliver. Um, in terms of forward options, I know we've talked about Jared McCann. Um, <laughs> hey, he's a I know decent that we're player. We're all big Jared McCann. <laughs> I know we're all Jared McCann fans, and I every every single day it feels like that's the trade that's going to happen. I don't know how um what the package would be but obviously seattle are going to be sellers at the deadline and the most intriguing thing with mccann other than his contract is the fact that he can play center and we talked earlier in the podcast about Tavares potentially moving to the wing and mccann would kind of open that up and i would love to see a Tavares on the wing mccann at center and nylander on the other side as the leaf second line i think that would look really good but mccann definitely probably is top of my list now Thomas Hurdle, obviously, I think would have a much bigger haul in terms of what the Leafs would need to trade for him. But those are the two players that I'm really looking at right now. Um, I do want a needle mover, as we've talked about in the past, Kevin. And mm. I think those two players would definitely move the needle. Um, I don't think you need double retention for either of them. So that's also a plus. But that's the way I would be leaning if I was if I was Kyle Dubas. So, so you think they'll likely trade for a defenseman, but you'd rather go forward? Is that what I'm hearing? Uh, no, I think I still think they're going to go for a forward, so, but yeah. I think it's close. I'll say like 55-45 or 60-40, okay. um, but it's close. Yeah, and I'll, I will say, like, I, I definitely have a strong preference to avoid rentals unless it's going to be hurdle, um, because they are going to probably face one of Tampa or Florida, and, you know, you're putting a lot of eggs in one basket for, for one playoff run against a very good team so at the I, same time if go... they lose in the first round dubas is getting fired and i think he knows that i don't know i don't know if he will I, I, yeah i don't know either i i i think i don't i don't think he's gonna get fired but i think that there's gonna be a big trade i i have to see i i don't love that exception because they're probably gonna set the franchise record for points percentage and they're gonna have you know it's not like they're gonna lose to montreal this year like if they lose to tampa bay first round you know, I, I think people kind of understand how good of a team that is. Uh, I could see it. I do think that there's pressure on him. I do think that he wants to add, make a big addition. So I do see that I could see him trading for a rental, but my preference would be, you know, let's go for, for the one and a half or, or even longer term uh, rather than putting all the eggs into this this year. Um, that would be my preference. I, I think I'm kind of 50-50 for defense on what they do. I just think there's... It's a lot easier to find a forward fit. Um, there aren't many defense available that that seem to be that that would be big upgrades. 
I know we, we've mentioned the players that are there. We just don't know if Severson gets moved. We don't know what the price of Manson will be. Um, you know, Anaheim could turn around tomorrow and re-sign Manson for all we know. So I, I just don't see too many fits. There are some. We went over them. Um, Ian, where are you at in terms of potentially trading for a forward? Yeah, so I don't know who's available in terms of guys who have more than one year of term left. Like, for example, I was looking up Alex Debrinkat for fun because I was like, uh, remember when the, the they said that Taves and Kane are the only untradeables? Taves, Kane, and Seth Jones, the only, only untradeables in Chicago. Did they just float out there moving Debrinkat? Because... Debrinkat's really good, but he's also an RFA, making $6.4 million, due for a raise. I don't know if the Leafs would even be able to afford him on his next contract, but th- that's what I'm trying to think of. Guys who have more than one year of term left that a team might be able to move at forward. I- I'm not seeing too many names available in that realm. So it's the Thomas Hurdle, Claude Giroux. Th- those are the big names in terms of rentals that I'm looking at. I'd love the idea of grabbing one of those guys because I think you need to fix that second line, which sounds weird to say out loud because I know the goals have been there. And I know points-wise we talked about this with Kerfoot, but I need more from a Tavares-Nylander line. I need that line to be clicking above 55% and they're hovering around 50 right now, which isn't good enough. Would Giroux get him there? Would Hurdle? I think Hurdle would definitely get him there. I think Giroux, the offense is awesome. But I think one of Giroux's biggest a- assets is his ability to play on the power play. And all of a sudden, if you trade for Giroud, do you, do you not have room for him on the top unit? Does someone get relegated to a second unit? Do you try a five-forward power play? I mean, you know, there, there are some things you could try in there, but I don't love the idea of trading for one of these guys as a rental, even though it definitely improves your team. And I, I'm terrified the Leafs are going to identify some defensive specialist up front because they did this last year with Nick Foligno. There was a better hockey player available, but they went, no, we're looking for someone who can help us hold leads because we're good at getting the lead. We need to hold on to the lead. Are they going to identify some defensive specialist, offer a first, a third, and a fifth for him, and then go out in the first round? Because I'd hate for that to happen again. Yeah, so I think the one player I'd be worth paying for, at least interested in, is Hurdle because he's so good. Like He's such a good 5-on-5 player. Uh, like a legitimate first line center, um, someone who can you know he's he's elevating Barabanov this year like to an insane degree. Uh, he could either move Tavares to the wing, or I would probably prefer to do the one two three up the middle. Um, you know, you go Matthews, Tavares, Hurdle, and then you just say good luck. Uh, I do think he's like a complete game changer. So you know, I'd be willing up to give up a first plus for him. Um, that's really the one guy I think is just the best player available. If he's there, every team should at least call. Um, Giroux and Pavelski are enough to make a call about. Like, I at least consider giving up a first for them, even though they're rentals. Um, but is is I, Dallas going to give up Pavelski? Because if he's available, he might move to the top of my list. I don't think he's better than Hurdle. Uh, he's a bit older, but he would be He would be a good fit in terms of um, just – Net front scoring, he's, he's such a good player in terms I of think, just deflections. Yeah, what I was talking about with Tavares um, earlier in terms of when the game gets tighter and the ability to make plays from in tight in the slot, I just think Pavelski can turn a bad shot into a good shot with his tipping ability. I just, I'm just, i such a big fan of him. Yeah, I, I, I think he, he was uh, at the All-Star game, even though he's like 37. Uh, just He's had an amazing career. Uh, I think Pavelski, maybe even Giroux is good enough to at least consider but i don't i'd probably rather go like i'm i'm fine with keeping the first round pick this year like if they trade the first i either want like a a major difference maker like a hurdle or i want someone with term like a like a severson or matt roy or something like that um you know i wouldn't mind getting a cali yarn rock for a second 
Uh, I think he's a, a good underrated player. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Seattle. I think he'd be a great fit. He's just a well-rounded player. Um, and, and I know that's not like the most exciting thing, but I don't want to give up a first for Foligno again. Like I don't want to. I don't want to go and, and give up a first. Um, I don't know for uh, even Manson seems like a lot. Um, although he he'd be a good fit. I do think that if you add someone to that second line, you make the second line better. And then we've seen with Kerfoot, he can have success with uh, on the wing on the third line. He could center a third line. You could have him center the the Spetsa line and get some offense there. Uh, I do that really in- appeals to me. So I think just in general, I want term rather than rentals. But definitely uh, interested in, in some of the bigger names. I just if you're giving up the first, it better be a, a star. That's my criteria this year after what happened last right. year. Maybe we'll wrap up. Maybe we'll wrap up with this. Nick, you're checking your phone on trade deadline day. The Leafs have just acquired player X, and you start running around like a maniac. Which player is is that guy for you right now? Uh, it would be I – th- I think I'd be really excited if it's either Hurdle or McCann. Um, okay. It's funny because last year we – and Kevin and I were talking about this. Like Last year we had this exact podcast, the three of us talking about it, and we all had predictions – and none of us thought that Felino was going to be the guy that the Leafs got. And then in the end, that's exactly who he got. So maybe we should hope that the Leafs don't get the guy that we want. Like maybe some reverse psychology this year. But um, I, I think I'm going to predict that they do go get a depth defenseman and they make a splash. I'm going to go with Jared McCann. I think with Kyle Dubas, like other than there's always been some sort of a a link of him being interested in them in the past or they played in the Sioux or something like that. I think the only one that kind of came as a surprise was probably Felino in terms of his big trades um, and maybe the Tyson Berry one. But I'm going to go with Jared McCann, just the Sioux, obviously. And, and obviously it's a player that they're interested in as they traded for him once before. So that'll be my prediction. I think they're going to get McCann. I just don't know if Seattle's going to trade for him. I'll say Ben Sherratt, you know, had the worst goal differential and scoring chance and shot differential on the Montreal Canadiens in the playoffs last year, but NHL GMs thought he did a good job, so there you Is go. Is that your prediction, Ian? <laughs> no, but I did see <laughs> that the Leafs flew... Who was it? Chris Johnson who reported that they, they floated out interest. I really hope that that's either fake or they're just trying to drive up the price because if he, they're actually interested... I think I've lost all faith in Dubas because there's no evidence that Ben Sherratt's good at hockey. So let's hear your prediction. Let's hear what who is the best player the Leafs acquire at this year's trade deadline. So they trade Severson for a first and two decent prospects. Okay, I'm gonna guess that they go with Josh Manson uh, for a first. So I, I think I think the fit's decent. I think he's a good player. It's a little bit much. I don't know if that's the route I would go, paying a first for a rental that's not a complete star, but that's what I'll guess. Um, we are guessing quite early here. We're still a month and a half from the deadline. Um, Nick and I might have to do some updated that guesses once we kind of know who's going to get traded, what the standings look like, uh, things like that. But So I, I heard McCann from Nick. I heard David Severson from Ian, and I heard Josh Manson from myself. So... We'll, we'll see who wins this competition. We'll probably all be wrong. It'll probably it'll probably end up being like Ben Sherratt or uh, I don't know who's completely out of who's completely out of left field, like a Ricard Raquel or a Max Domi or something. We'll see. 
Uh, but it'll definitely get be Riley Nash again. I think I think the loser should uh, the loser has to buy a uh, Nick Ritchie Marley's jersey. The two losers, if one of the if one of us get it right. What if Brett Ritchie's Nick Ritchie for Nick Felino, one for one? Who says no? <laughs> the only the, I think the stat on I Nick actually Ritchie, don't know. <laughs> Nick, sorry, what was it? Nick Ritchie for Nick Felino, one for one. Who says no? That was my joke. I think I think the Leafs say no. I don't think they want the extra year. That's my guess. I think it's Felino is three years, right? I want to say. Well, let me look it up here. I was gonna say I'm not 100 um, percent on that. I don't if know. It's, if it's the same term, would you take it? <laughs> poison yeah. pill for poison oh. pill. The the interest? No, it's just two years. It for is. Felino. He's making three point eight, and the Leafs tried to re-sign him. The Leafs tried to get in on that bidding war, which again yeah. is concerning to me. I don't know. Like two years at three million is probably. I probably would have been okay with it heading in, um, or something like that. But it definitely has an age well, so they they kind of avoided that that bomb. Um, the only thing I, I'll say about Nick Ritchie is that he seems to be better than his brother this year, which is saying something. Um, I don't think Brett Ritchie has a point in like twenty games or something. So I think um, he's I think he's going to be a top six player for the rest of the year on the Marlies. <laughs> I, so I think he's getting traded in the next like three weeks. I think they're, they're going to try to open up some cap space. I hope Joshua Hosang lights it up at the Olympics, and then he gets a roster spot and, and somehow on the fourth line with Spezza rejuvenates the offense there. Don't see it happening, but that would be cool. Um, all right, so Ian, thanks for joining us. We've kept you here for, for quite a while. Uh, almost two hours in. This, is, this might be our longest. Nick, you think this is our longest one? Yeah, definitely, but it was worth it. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you made it this far, you're a true leafer. You're a true... Uh, I, I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. So everyone, check out Ian's work. He's at Maple Leafs Hot Stove. He's at Ian Graff on Twitter. Ian, thanks again for joining us, and we'll see everyone next week. Thanks, Ian. Hey, good talk, guys. Cheers.